Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome this afternoon to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that help those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests tell their recovery stories and describe how sharing their experience has changed or even saved their lives. I'd like today to welcome Di to the show. Hi, Di. Hi. Di's a member of Al-Anon Family Groups and will be sharing her journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and how Al-Anon has helped to cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So welcome to the show today, Di. Thanks, Anne. I thought we'd start by uh, focusing on your early life. So if you could tell us a, just a little bit about your childhood, where you, where you grew up and uh, what was your family life like? Sure. So um, I grew up in Melbourne, Victoria, and um, just in the leafy suburbs out in the northern, northeastern suburbs in a very large family. So my parents had eight kids all together. I'm in the middle and um, and it's a mix of boys and girls and uh, I think my mum wanted more so well actually I know my mum wanted more but my youngest brother was born deaf and after that experience that was enough for her to think I think I need to stop here and, and focus on looking after him which was a big job for her. My, my, my dad worked the whole time um, he had a, a fairly good job and would head off first thing in the morning and come home around dinner time. And it was a good, you know, good family. We didn't have any sort of major experiences with alcohol or alcoholism during our, our younger years, but it was it was fairly chaotic. I, I remember often around the dinner table. So my dad would get home just before dinner. He'd, he'd contact us by the phone to say that he was on his way home and that was a, a sign to mum to have dinner on the table in half an hour and that would happen and we would all start setting the table and, and getting ready for dinner and then we'd all sit down at the dinner table. There was all, all ten of us and then the chaos started with everyone trying to speak over the other person and trying to get, you know, the the attention of mum and dad and and generally speaking, that would go on for the whole of dinner, unless my dad was particularly tired, in which case he would put a stop to it. And it, it was pretty simple. It was, radio. that's enough of all of that. And that was it. And then we, we, all, we would all sit there quietly. So it was an interesting sort of setup. I think, you know, mostly at work, I had a lot of challenges in being heard. That was probably one of my experiences of growing up. And I was either too loud or I was too quiet. So when I was too loud, I was being told to quieten down. And so that's what I did. <laughs> but, you know, we, we always um, were looked after. We always had uh, food on the table. We, we always had a school to go to. Um, we actually went to Catholic primary and secondary education. So, um, you know, my parents were prepared to... to um, put in for that sort of education and um and we had good holidays you know they were they were similar holidays all the time just to make sure that it was easy to organize for my mum but we went down to Ocean Grove over the summertime and we'd set up the tent and we'd stay there for um, usually four four to six weeks of the school holidays and in the winter time we often went as a family, we went away skiing and the same sort of thing. We went for a, a chunk of a week's time and then we went to the same place. We all knew the routine. So a lot of it, I think, growing up to try and manage this sort of chaos was around how do we make sure there's good routines for certain things. The same with getting, you know, after school in the morning, Dad would go, Dad would wake us up 
and uh, we'd all have to organise our own breakfast and, you know, bags and lunches and things like that. But then at a certain time he'd go, right, we're going in five minutes and if you weren't ready to get in that car, you're in trouble. And he wasn't, he wasn't a, a, a grouchy dad or anything like that. He was just, this is how we have to make it work. So these are, the, these are the rules, this is how it's going to work, and that way we all get to school and work on time. And uh, so, yeah, we'd pile into the car and get dropped, to, dropped off at the various places on the way. Getting home, we'd have to make our own way home. Um, sometimes mum would pick us up, but not very often. And um, usually it was a bus and, you know, that was easy enough. And, yeah. Sounds idyllic to me, Di. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting to you know that you say that because sometimes you know talking about when when I hear other people's stories in Elanon, I just think you know that's not my experience at all, um, and and so you know I, it, it does make me contemplate sometimes how things ended up as they did, which is you know my story. But I think the chaos is. For me, one of the big things that I identify with, as I started growing older, I think the competition of, of a large family started to affect my self-esteem quite a bit. And, um, and so that's sort of where things started to get a little bit, I suppose, started unravelling for me. And, and what about life outside of the home? What was, what was your school life like uh, and friendships at school? Yeah, so in primary school, I had a lot of, you know, I was good at school, didn't have any particular problems with the subjects. I had a few friends, you know, not, not a lot, but I think in primary school it's more about how fast can you get to the monkey bars and, you know, who's playing Skippy today and things like that. So I have good memories of primary school and, um, you know, sometimes we'd take our Barbie dolls and uh, we'd, we'd sit down. <laughs> I remember quite vividly sitting down up against a, a fence on the bitumen and, you know, all of us girls getting our Barbie dolls out and, and playing playing with them together and just those sorts of things, really. It's pretty simple life at school. Uh, as I said, it was a Catholic school, so we went to church every Sunday. Uh, there was a few other families that we knew from there, so, you know, sometimes... After church, we might go and see those families together. Actually, a number of them were large families. <laughs> so, you know, it was like this, this whole bunch of kids and this whole bunch of kids would get together and, and, and muck around in there in whoever's backyard. And um, so not so many, I would say I didn't have many individual personal friends. A lot of the time it was just the friends that the family had. There were a few friends at school that I kept for a fairly long time. Like what, what year was this? What decade was this? <laughs> uh, that was in the 70s. Sort of late 70s? Yes. All right, so, so Di, that was a, a lovely suburban Australian happy family in the, the late 70s. So as you came out of that background and into your adult life, how did you see yourself as a person and how did you see life um I think being in a small school I mean it was probably quite similar some people would have the same sort of experience living in country towns that you know there's only a small group of students for the whole time I, I was a pretty shy person I knew I was really good at school um but I was fairly shy and so I didn't, I didn't find friendships really very easy in high school. Um, when I first started at high school, I had a really good friendship and that was a friendship where, I, you know, I actually spent, you know, nights over at her house. She spent nights over at my place, which is probably the first time I'd ever experienced that sort of friendship. Uh, and that went through from year seven through to year nine. And then things sort of started to come unstuck because I couldn't... But, you know, there's a lot of pressure when, when you're a young person to conform and I wasn't very good at that. I had sort of my own views on how you approach life and um, I wasn't really into, I, I wasn't trying to be, you know, anyone special at school. I was just trying to be me, I suppose. And 
you know, not really knowing what that meant as a young person. By looking back on it, what, what does it mean now? What, what, who was that me? Well, I think I was um, a much more, what, what I wanted to do is have my artistic side recognised as well as my academic. And I wanted to be, I didn't want to be my, my sister's younger sister. My sister was in the year above me and, you know, still I can guarantee you to this day if I met some of the teachers from my old school, they would either say, oh, you're Pauline's sister, or they would call me Pauline. You know, that's not me. We are really different people and I love it to death, but we are really different people. And so I'm just like, no, no, I'm, you know, I've got my own personality. You know, I like, I'm a very friendship orientated person now and very tactile but it's taken me a long time to know that that's the sort of person that I am and looking back then I was just really swallowed up in a system and I didn't know how to handle friendships at all I didn't know how to just relax and 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 still be myself and be comfortable with that I was always feeling like I had to try and fit in but I but I couldn't and so I didn't and then I felt like I felt a lot of my high school years I felt alone. Not that I was. I, I always hung out with people, but I never really felt like I fitted in with them. I think in the last two years, the group that I hang out with back then, it was just like, felt like it was the misfit group. It's like, if you don't fit in with anybody else, just hang out with that group and see how you go. You know, we had our own space that we could hang out in and we'd do that. But it was really just, you know, we'd eat lunch together and we'd talk about random things. I think that's part of my problem, right, because I actually find it really, I don't think that I've got a lot of interesting stuff to say on random stuff, right, because I don't know, like, okay, I, I like the I like talking about the weather, but you can only do that for so long. But there's a lot of stuff in there where you just go, yeah, that's not really that's not really life shattering, and it's probably not really something that I need to talk about. So I, I think that's part of my problem, just finding that I had finding a voice that I was comfortable with sharing with other people, and that they were interested in. Um, and again, my self esteem was was pretty low, so I didn't really think people would be interested in listening to me. So you got to the end of year twelve. Just before we're going to go to a break in a minute, but just before we go. Where do we see, where have you landed after year 12? Where did you land? Well, this is where things went really pear-shaped because in my last year of high school, I, I met a guy, thought that I was extremely in love. As I said, it was a Catholic school. And three months before I finished high school, I found out that I was pregnant. And I shared that information only with my parents and obviously his parents and my parents said to me, you cannot tell anyone at school. You need to finish year 12. And I accept that that was what they felt they needed to say. And I certainly did it. I didn't say a word to anybody. But, you know, even in the first three months when you're a young person, a little bit hard to um, not show eventually. And I and I got very tired as well. Um, I have no intention, ever had any, I never had any intention of not having a baby. So that didn't even enter the conversation. And so I was very tired in the last three months and I certainly I was starting to show at the end as well. So it was on our, at our graduation dinner that the rumours, by this stage, the rumours had started, but at the graduation di- dinner the rumour got out and by the end of the night it was like the news of the year, <laughs> which is not really what I wanted. But, you know, that's the way it goes. So, yeah, the first, no doubt not the last, student of a Catholic high school, brand new high school, that found themselves pregnant before they finished school. (laughs) Okay. Um, We'll take a break now and we'll come back and continue our conversation. And to take us into the break, here's Western Australian songwriter Kate Hindle with her song, Take It All In. I never want to leave this town Cause I'm scared I might forget 
Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Living Free Show. Um, Before the announcements there, uh, the song you heard was Take It All In by Kate Hindle. And now we're back talking with Di about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. Now, Di, uh, just before the break, you were saying how it was the end of year 12 and you found yourself pregnant and got to the end of year 12 pretty tired. What happened after that? Yeah, so after the end of the year, I I actually did move in with my um, partner, the, the the guy who I'd become pregnant with, and um, we tried really hard to make things work. But um, and he was about six years older than me. He had a job and all that sort of stuff, and uh, it was just really hard. But you know, we we were still pretty young, still pretty naive, and um, you know, I, I can still say today that that I loved him, and I I think that he did me. 
but I just don't think that we had any of the coping skills of, of understanding how to live together or make things work. And so before I had my son, we, we split up. I moved back home with my parents and, um, and I had the baby. We, we went out for a while together, like we just dated again. Um, but in the end, you know, that, that fell apart. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I was pretty traumatised at the time. I was pretty upset at the time. But reflecting back on it, you can sort of go, yeah, it sort of makes sense. It was never really going to work the way we wanted it to. And, um, and so then I was a single mum and I, I still had hopes and dreams. I uh, still wanted to, you know, I, I, you know, I, I didn't actually, um, so with the, the HSE, which is what I did then, I didn't get enough of a result in my exams to pass the year. But, of course, you pass. You just, you know, you pass the year and that's it, right? Um, but I would never share my um my final outcome with anybody. It wasn't great. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of that had to do with where my headspace at the time. I was far too busy focusing on other things. But I did do art in my last year of school and I still really, really loved that side of stuff. But actually from the point that I, after I had my son, I didn't pick up um, a paintbrush for years and years and years. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that later. And I'd still do a little bit of drawing here and there, but not, not very much. And then I, I, I was a stay-at-home mum for 12 months. I looked after my son and was obviously on a, on a single mother's uh, pension. And then I was pretty keen to get into work. So I did uh, work in, in offices and in data entry and eventually in payroll, which... Um, became one of my passions and uh, although I had a number of jobs when I was younger um, it sort of started to settle down over time and once I sort of had a bit of a clearer vision of the direction I wanted to go and uh, and I was pretty good at it so you know it sort of came naturally to me um, thinking about numbers and 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 the rules that you know the legislation that that guides payroll and other things like that. And um, <clears throat> outside of that, I so my son would go to things like family daycare and, um, and eventually school and, and things. And for a couple of years, I, that's what I did. I was just a single mum. And then but through that, I didn't really date very much for a while. And then I had a few, a few short-term relationships and then um, I uh, met my uh, next partner and he was uh, a couple of years younger than me and had a few of his own things going on and uh, been in, in, in trouble with the law a little bit and things like that uh, in his younger years and was still sort of working through the um, ramifications of that. But, um, you know, we started dating and it all moved fairly quickly, actually, and uh, we got married. And we were in a group that would go camping a lot and, you know, go out on activities together and things that often involved drinking. No, I, I like a drink as much as anybody else, I would say, and, and my partner liked to drink and then, you know, we got married and I uh, thought that things would start settling down and they, they didn't. And then I was pregnant again. I had my second child and um, my husband's drinking got worse rather than better and he would work late and he would be very disorganised with his money and all of these things were quite foreign to me and I didn't know what to do or how to handle it. Um, so a lot of the time I handled it quite badly. Um, you know, there would be a lot of uh, arguments, pleading, slamming doors, things like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd 
I'd make dinner and then he wouldn't turn up. And so he'd be like, I'd just leave it on the kitchen table. Like, well, you know, you can eat it when you want to, do whatever, whatever. Stuff like that. Um, and things really started to come apart. For me personally, I got really anxious about what was going on. I got really upset a lot. And, you know, this was a man that was prepared to take my son in and take me and, um, you know, we, we saved and we saved and we tried really hard to make everything okay. We were renting, the, you know, for the first couple of years and eventually we, we actually bought a house, which was a, a really actually quite a good, good um, deal that we got. It was an ex-army house. And uh, we did it up, we worked on it. So there was lots of things going on that were fine. There was lots of interactions that were quite normal. But I would always pine for those when things were going pear-shaped. I'd be like, you know, why can't it be like this all the time? Uh, why does there have to be these difficult times as well? And, and I just, I really didn't know how to handle it. Over time I got... Uh, more and more anxious, I started to get conditions uh, that, uh, you know, for, for example, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome was probably the first and most traumatic thing that happened. And that was for a while debilitating. You know, I was trying to work and I would have these extreme stomach cramps and things like that. And um, I'd be waking up in the middle of the night from it and so then I'd be exhausted when I'd get up the next day for work. And so, yeah, those sorts of things were just a, a glimpse at how difficult it was going to get because, unfortunately, it just kept getting worse. Um, we did move to another house, uh, sold, sold the one we lived in and bought an, another house um, further out closer to where I live now and uh, it was a funny experience because when we bought that house right from the start I felt like um, you know we 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 don't deserve this house this house is too good for us and this is going to be a problem um, by that stage I was paying most of the mortgage and my husband's income whilst he was always working was not growing and also I was receiving less of it or, you know, the household was receiving less of it. And at one stage we had to remortgage and when we did that, the, the mortgage broker basically said to me, well, we're, we're just going to have to go by your income. You can get the mortgage, that's okay, but it's basically based on your income because we can't really work out his um, I think by that stage, he'd started working for himself. I think that was the reason why. And, uh, and that was a whole new world of pain, having him running his own business because then he could be much more unpredictable in when he came home and when he went out and where the money came from and where the money went to. And, you know, there was always excuses and it was just, you know, it was heartbreaking and... Uh, and again, this was this was a man that that I really cared about. I really I really loved. I wanted us to be you know happy together. I knew we could be happy. We had times when we were happy. They were just not consistent, or they weren't able to be you know sustained. And uh, eventually, I I was just like I don't know what else to do. I think we need to sell the house. And we we had I suppose sort of a separation but not because we continue to date and this is where for me I had a recognition that I was also codependent and that basically meant that whilst um, whilst I recognized that by this stage I recognized that he was an alcoholic I I still thought that I could fix it I still thought it was worth fixing I still wanted to be with him and so, I, you know, we would, we would live apart but we would make it work somehow. Um, in, in all that, Di, where, where's your large family? Are they supporting you? Are you confiding in them or are you keeping it quiet? Or 
Yeah, um, good question. I, I, you know, my my um, sister Pauline. <laughs> you'll hear about her, but she's one year older than me, so we're obviously pretty close. Um, you know, she was pretty clear on what was going on. Uh, I didn't need to confide in her even. Um, it was just, you know, as obvious as the end of your nose sort of thing to her that things were not going too well. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Um, But I I didn't speak about it a lot to my family uh, until probably quite close. Well, it was around the time that we were selling the house. And um, and that's when I, I actually spoke to my dad first. And I said to my dad that, you know, things weren't going very well. I was really worried about it and, and you know, and, you know, my husband's an alcoholic. And then, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk about it all the time, but, you know, my dad, again, was, I mean, my dad, my parents have always been supportive in their own special way. My mum is not a very... Um, She's not a very openly affectionate person, whereas I would say my dad is more so, except that he was so busy being the, the breadwinner for all of those years, we didn't get to see it very much. And so by this stage, he was retired and um, that was sort of, I think, opened up a new type of relationship between us where it was much easier for me to confide with him. And, you know, big family, sure, you know, there was lots of other people I could potentially have turned to, but no, I didn't really. And I didn't talk to many of my friends about it. Having said that, once I did talk to my dad and once we did um, sell the house and separate, uh, I talked to everyone really inappropriately. <laughs> you know, like It was like the floodgates have opened and, and this was open slather sort of thing. And it was, it's, uh, I've learnt today it's just not the way to do it. You know, um, my friends who are not affected by the disease uh, of alcoholism had no idea what I was, you know, what I was um, going through, let alone how they might be able to support me in that. Um, probably similarly for my family, although my eldest sister was actually also married to an alcoholic. Um, but he died of um, cancer uh, sort of probably a couple of years before this had happened. And so she wasn't, I wasn't, you know, that wasn't a conversation that we were, you know, going to have too much about either. She had her own stuff to, to deal with there with still raising three kids and things. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I would share, you know, I've always had a problem with sharing I'm very open about stuff. Um, I, you know, I probably sometimes needed to put more of a filter on the way that I shared things, but I find that really difficult. Again, because I just want to, I just want to be me, and part of that is just, well, this is a part of my life, um, and you know, nowadays, um, I just think you know, th- there's a lot of crap that goes on in everyone's life. And, you know, if we're all too busy trying to not talk about it because we're worried that something, you know, might um, offend somebody else, then it just gets bottled up and then you get all of these other problems. So, like, my anxiety kept growing. My conditions uh, kept increasing. Uh, I ended up with a condition called fibromyalgia, which uh, is no fun at all. And... um, you know, I, I was going to work, I was driving to work in my car, bawling my eyes out because I'd just left this crazy sort of situation. I would, you know, tidy myself up for the day, I would work for the day, and then I'd hop back in the car and cry all the way home thinking, what am I going to see when I get there? And, you know, after about probably three months of doing that, I finally went to the doctor 
and I just burst into tears. And it was the doctor who said to me, um, it sounds to me like you need to go to Al-Anon. Now, by this stage, I'd already, I, obviously I knew about AA. I'm not sure that anyone doesn't know about AA. Um, and I had already actually taken my husband to an AA meeting. Um, and I knew about Al-Anon as well, but um, but I, I think that my courage was not there yet. And so I, um, I kept thinking, no, I can, I can get through this. I can do this myself. Um, but as soon as my doctor said to me, I think this is what you need to do, um, I was like, right, well, it's like if my doctor prescribes me a medication, I'm going to take it. So if my doctor tells me to do this, I'm going to do it. And so I did. And I went to my first meeting, uh, which was in Eltham, and, um, and at the first meeting, it was suggested that I go to six meetings. And so, again, I do what I'm told to do. <laughs> we'll have another short break. And after the break, we'll talk. You can tell us all about what happened after your, during your six meetings and, and uh, what happened after that. And to take us through the break, this is a song called Baby I'm Gone by uh, the April family.
What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. The song you heard there was called Baby I'm Gone and it was by the band The April Family. This is Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Di about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon. Now Di, just before we went to the break, um, you were talking about how you went to Al-Anon and they suggested that you come to six meetings. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about what happened after that? Yes, so the very first meeting... Uh, I still vividly remember today. I spent the whole meeting crying. Uh, I, I, you know, an Al-Anon meeting is a, a group of people who just share their experience, strength and hope, and you have one person speak after another normally. And so there was, I think, 20 people in the room and each one of them had an opportunity to speak and each time they would say something that would resonate with me and my experience. And... So I think for the first time in a long time, I felt like I was in the right place. So even though I was told by my doctor and even though I was told by the group to come to six meetings, I thought, yes, that's probably a great idea. Let's do that. And, uh, and, I, and I, you know, went to six meetings and said, I'm still going to Al-Anon today. Uh, I'm going to say it's a, about 16 years and what I, so I think the first thing that I really found is that the identification, you know, identifying with other people's stories and thinking, well, you know, if these people are sitting here and not bawling their eyes out and able to talk about stuff that's happened, then maybe there's hope that one day I can do that too. And um, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, keep coming along and, and see what happens. And I found that to be continually my experience when I went to meetings. I found that I still was really, I was still really anxious. I was still really upset about a lot of things. I, um, I, I still cried a lot. I, I spent the first six months crying at meetings, you know, and I think that was part of, for me, part of the healing process that I needed to go through. And I, as I said, I had, I'd been to an AA meeting before and I've, you know, been to others since then. And I really did still wonder whether I would be able to, you know, continue my relationship with my husband. Um, at that stage, I was still trying really hard to make that work. Over that six-month period, probably over 12 months, um, I came to the realisation that I just needed to let that go. And in doing so, it actually allowed me to detach in, in a way that um, I wasn't watching him all the time. And, you know, to be honest, I think today 
whilst it's not the way everybody needs to go, for me and for him, it was it was a good decision because he was able to go on with his life and I was able to go on with mine in a much more positive way. And I think we have a, a better relationship today than we would have if we had kept, you know, hitting up against each other in, in that sort of way that we were previously. That's, you know, in Eleanor, we, we learn about detachment as well in, in, in different ways. Um, we talk about detaching with love. That's obviously a, a physical detachment. But over the years, I've also learnt skills in, in detaching from other people's behaviours and not taking those on board as being attacks against me personally. And that has helped me to find my space. You know, who am, who am I and, and what, what is it that I need to look after? That's, you know, one of the biggest problems I had was I felt like I had to fix everything for everybody. So for my children, for my husband and for myself, I was, I was the, you know, I was the main breadwinner. I was, I, I, I was and I am an intelligent person. I can fix these things. I can make it all work. And I just kept, kept on trying and trying and trying until I had to stop, stop that. And uh, so I learned in Al-Anon that um, I'm not responsible for other people's behaviour. I can't control them I, I didn't cause it I can't control it and I can't cure it and so I just have to look after my own space and um, my own behavior and over the over the you know number of years that that I've been in Al-Anon uh, what I've found is that that's quite a freeing way to live <laughs> and uh, and not only that you know I've 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 found a higher power through Al-Anon, which means that not only do I, you know, need to watch my own space, but I've I've got a higher power who can help me with that. I actually don't have to do it all on my own. And uh, that was a huge relief for me because I just felt so, in the end, so um, incapable of, of achieving the things that I wanted to, to achieve and... Uh, you know, I, I mentioned before that we, we sold our house and in doing so, we, we split uh, the money from that and I had enough money from that to go forward and, and purchase a new house. And, you know, I've, I've now got my own place and for a period of time there, um, my youngest son lived with me, single mum again, and but this time around going to Elanon. So this time around, you know, just letting my son be himself and obviously supporting him in any way that I had to or could, but keeping my hands off when it came to him making decisions and, and working through his own life's challenges, which he has many of because he grew up in the house with an alcoholic and it's a family disease. You know, both of my children are affected in their own ways uh, and so when I look forward now, you know, all these years later, I know that Eleanor saved my life, but it's still my life. There are still challenges and there always will be. And the challenges today are different. And I certainly manage them differently. And so I find it a whole lot easier today to live a life that, that fits well with me. You know, one of uh, Eleanor's... Well, the, the, the serenity prayer is, is quite um, front and centre at an Al-Anon meeting. And for me, that idea of serenity is, you know, that's, that's really what I want today. Um, I still have, you know, a raucous family that I get together with when I'm able to, when I'm not in, you know, lockdown in, in Melbourne, Victoria. But... Um, when we're not able to get together in person, we you know we still get together on Zoom and things like that. But you know, my family is is always going to be my family. I you know I've always got that um, you know that sort of chaotic situation that I could end up in. But today I choose to be involved in my family, but not to be involved in the chaos. And you know, for me, it's not. It's not serenity at all costs, 
but it's certainly, um, you know, if I can get serenity instead of anything else, then that's certainly my preference. So I work my program. I still go regularly to meetings and we have uh, our own meeting on Sunday afternoons at 2pm continues to um, thrive and at the moment we've got that on Zoom and so that's that's been great. comes again with its challenges, not being able to connect personally, being a, a tactile person, but um, adapting to the, the different challenges of, of today's life is just, you know, it's just part of the program. Just I just have to deal with today and just for today, I can't do it in person. So just for today, I'm going to enjoy it to the best of my ability as it is. Uh, and so I think, you know, that comes into accepting the things that I can't change. And, and at the same time, you know, I am, I'm able to give service back to my group by helping make sure that that all comes together well. I go to other meetings during the week sometimes as well and what I find I can usually, you know, nowadays I can usually tell that I need to go to a meeting. I'll, I'll be starting to feel a little bit down or a little bit, you know, anxious about something. I'll be overthinking something. There'll be a conversation going on inside my head as though I'm talking to a third party, telling them what they should be doing. Um, and that's a really good sign to me that I need to go to a meeting. And so, you know, the, the benefit today is that I can find one a lot easier uh, because I can look up the website and, and see whether there's one available at what time, what date, and all I need is a, a link. But, yeah, I've lost my train of thought for a moment there. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really grateful that um, we can continue our meetings online. But I really look forward to getting back to them in person. And uh, so yeah, my family's still around. We're still, you know, but my my um, uh, two children are still very much challenged by their experiences. And today I'm, you know, just in the position of reminding myself that again, I didn't cause it. And I can't control it and I can't cure it. With my eldest son, there's a lot of um, mental health issues, a lot of challenges which have really reared up this year. And so the problems don't go away just because you're in Al-Anon, but the solutions or the way to manage your life are there. You know, when, when my son first called me uh, to tell me that he'd, he'd got himself into some strife, the, I got off the phone from him and got straight on to an Al-Anon member. And that Al-Anon member just listened to me. Uh, one of the beauties of the program, you know, you learn to listen and people just listen to you. Uh, it's extraordinary. Again, not, not my experience from growing up in my family of origin and, and not really my experience of the world generally. You know. So to, to just be able to ring someone and just... You know, in some completely incoherent way, blurt out what was going on and for them to just quietly listen and then, you know, quietly speak to me. And then after that, you know, conversation, I went to an Eleanor meeting. And again, that just grounded me. And I've been through that challenge this year and, and I keep just, you know, asking myself, okay, when I'm supporting my son, what does that look like? What what can at what point is it that he can do this thing himself? If he can do this thing himself, I need to hand it over to him. If he asks me for help and I can help him, I will, but I still have to ask that question. Is this something that I can that he can do for himself? So, you know, a simple example is going to a medical appointment with him so that I can, you know, get the information and make sure that we've both got it because he's got a, a, a real memory problem now. That's fine. But when he says to me, oh, I need to make that appointment, I can say to him, yes, you do, and this is, this is the steps that you need to do to make it. So you make the phone call and you can ask these questions and then I just I leave that with him. And, you know, he's shown real ability this year to manage those things over time. So... It's been, uh, you know, it's been an, a really interesting journey for these last 16 years. 
uh, the last 12 months particularly has been just yet another example of, of how well the program works if you're willing to work it. And for me, you know, it's just for me now a way of life. Um, I've, got, I've got my daily readers that I can read if I, I need some encouragement in a particular area. Uh, if I'm feeling down about myself for something particular, I can work through, you know, whether it's working through a step or a tradition or uh, a reading in, in one of the books, I can see, well, you know, what, what's really going on here? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling about this thing? And, um, yeah, and, and it's, it's just at the end of all of that, if that doesn't work, I can hand it over to my higher power. I'm going, you know what? I don't know what to do with this. It's yours. <laughs> and, uh, and then I've just got to try not to take it back again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I really like that idea of um, coming to somebody else or into a meeting all incoherent and then coming out of that having been listened to and then and then being coherent <laughs> so that's that's a great a great gift of Alanon. so just to end off our conversation what have you got going on in your life now so you've you've um handed everyone's problems back to them and you've simplified things so do you, what's how are you living at the moment for you yeah, so now I'm, well, I think the main thing is that I, I have a lot of joy in my life today, regardless of the challenges. You know, the challenges are always going to be there. They're going to be different challenges for different people at different levels. Um, but today I choose to have joy in my life and I find that joy by knowing that that's somebody else's responsibility to look after that or that's my responsibility and I need to work out how to deal with it. And so, and if I don't know straight away how to deal with it, I know that there's a program that I can go to to find the answers. Um, so I, I live pretty simply. You know, I've still got my, my little house that I bought. I'm still paying a mortgage, of course, but still got it. And um, I, I am married again, actually. I probably neglected to mention that. That also has its challenges, um, but third time lucky. Well, not that I was married the first time, but you know what I mean. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're living together in a house that, it, you know, we don't, we don't get to go out a lot, but we're managing a space with each other that is, is considerate of each other's needs, but also that each other has their own space and their own, you know, ways of doing stuff um I, I still work I have a good job and I you know I still have my two boys that I see they're both adults my eldest is 34 <laughs> and uh, um, my youngest is in his 20s late 20s and so yeah we um we get together when we can and we each you know they 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 both, they all know I'm in a program and, and they also know that program's available to them anytime they want it. They also know I've got a higher power and that, you know, I believe that they each have their own and, um, you know, I hope one day that they'll develop a relationship with their higher power, but that's, you know, that's in their court. And my family is still all around, which, you know, I'm very grateful both of my parents are in their 80s now I get to see them regularly and um, my younger brother that I mentioned was deaf I get to see him regularly he lives just around the corner and my sister lives around the corner <laughs> life's a joy life's a joy you know that's, that's I don't know what else to say <laughs> Di thank you so much for coming in or rather uh, joining me on zoom to tell your story I really enjoyed hearing it that's all we've got time for today if you would like to find out more about Al-Anon family groups, then you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or go online at alanon.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. That's all we've got time for today, so I'd like to thank Di again for joining me and sharing her Al-Anon family group's recovery experience with us. I hope that you will be able to listen again next week when we will be talking about recovery from addiction. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio 
on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.